You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, Chelsea Handler here from the Dear Chelsea podcast, and I love women. iHeart is proud to celebrate International Women's Day by highlighting some truly exceptional women and the work they do to make the world a better place. Our guest this week is none other than Monica Lewinsky. We discuss what to do about online bullying, why the media treats men and women so differently, and how we women can turn our pain into power. Take a moment this week to think about how you can support the women in your life and then take action. Find Dear Chelsea on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously on Murder in Oregon. As a columnist for The Oregonian and The Portland Tribune, Phil wrote more than 100 columns about Michael Frankie's murder. He was a public official who discovered corruption in his own department. The night before he was to address the legislative committee on this very subject, he was stabbed in the heart in front of the building where he worked. I think he made a number of people in the department uncomfortable, probably the head of prisons, Dick Peterson. Scott McAllister, who was the AG lawyer who had for the previous 12 or 13 years been assigned to corrections. That's the third member of Department of Corrections officers on, on the outs with, with Frankie. After Phil wrote an article alleging the corruption Krauss had intimated to Pat and confesses as much in greater detail to the investigators, Krauss recants his confession and is dropped as a suspect out of nowhere. They didn't like the people his confession would ultimately lead to. That's what it looks like, for sure. About a week after the murder, the police held a press conference and announced they were interested in talking with a man who had been seen in the dome building. He quickly uh, became known as the man in the pinstripe suit. Conrad Garcia, six months after Michael Frankie is murdered, he goes to his counselor in prison and tells the counselor that he knows something about the murder. He says, uh, says he was approached by Tim Natividad to do the murder, and he knows that Scott McAllister, the prison lawyer, arranged it. Tim always carried a knife. Tim had a huge knife collection. Tim was violent. Tim told me he killed somebody, and I think it's Michael. Look at this composite drawing. They laughed and said, you can't convict a dead man. There's nothing we can do here. By August of 1989, Johnny Krause, the man who confessed to the murder of Michael Frankie, then recanted, had been dropped as a suspect in the investigation. That's when an internal memo landed on the desk of then-Governor Neil Goldschmidt that would raise some serious concerns about the investigation into Michael Frankie's murder. This was something we didn't find out uh, till some years later, actually. We didn't know about it at the time. But as the heat was building up on the Frankie case, because they had dropped Krauss and, and they had uh, nothing else in sight, or so we thought, Governor Neil Goldschmidt's legal aide wrote him a long memo on how to handle all this pressure that was building up. Uh, it was a political problem for them. And it is very revealing. We've obtained a copy of that memo. And in light of what we now know, there are sections that are, at best, concerning. Here are some excerpts. Nothing in Michael Frankie's files or elsewhere, the memo says, indicate he was working on anything other than his pressing budget problems, and Mike's family made no mention of the much-reported phone call about organized criminal activity. 
when they had their initial interviews with the police. But we know that's not true. Yes, yes. We, we also would later find out from officers' notes that, in fact, the day Kevin got out here to Oregon after his brother's death, uh, he told the police about this. And then he called again from Santa Fe, from Mike's funeral, to reiterate right. that. The memo goes on. The Frankie family's activities and the presence of Phil Stanford ensure that the issue will continue to receive attention by the press and public until some decisive step is taken to resolve it. So they just want it to go away. Oh, they, they do indeed. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. Another key takeaway from that memo to Goldschmidt was the idea that an FBI investigation wasn't exactly welcomed by the Oregon state government. I know from my own interviews at the time, the FBI was interested in getting into this. They didn't make it public, but certainly uh, Goldschmidt and his people knew it, and they did not want the FBI to investigate uh, corruption down there. Was there resistance to the FBI stepping into the investigation? It's in the memo. Uh, how to get rid of this this problem. It is also possible that you could get federal assistance, but I believe it is crucial not to turn in this into an FBI investigation if you want any assurance that it will stay within the bounds you have set. If you want any assurance that it will stay within the bounds you have set, what does that mean? Well, it meant something to the person who was writing the memo and it meant something to Goldschmidt, but even when we finally got this memo, uh, when it finally became public, it wasn't clear. What were the bounds that Goldschmidt had set? What were his reasons for not wanting an investigation? That's, that's the question. It sounds like he wanted something contained. Oh, yes. And then, eight months later, in April of 1990, seemingly out of nowhere, a small-time drug dealer from Salem named Frank Gable is arrested and charged with the murder of Michael Frankie. Frank Gable has found himself a key figure in the Michael Frankie murder investigation. He says he didn't do it. He is currently serving a year sentence in the Coos County Jail for assaulting his wife. But others say he's done much worse than beat his wife. Mike Kierens, a convict from the Idaho State Penitentiary, claims Frank Gable told him he killed Frankie during a car burglary. Remember, at this point, Johnny Krause had already confessed knowledge of the murder, recanted his confession, and was granted immunity to not recant his recantation. Liz Godlove also had gone to the police with her belief Tim Natividad was the man in the pinstripe suit and could have killed Frankie, only to have them laugh and say they couldn't convict a dead man. Frank Gable's name came out of nowhere, even to the three journalists most heavily involved in the case, Phil Stanford, TV reporter Eric Mason, and Steve Jackson at the Statesman Journal. Here's Jackson. Gable wasn't on my radar at all at that time. And by this time, I was already having difficulties with the way the investigation was handled. And Jackson found the arrest of Gable oddly convenient for the police. The only one that was really pursued was the easy one for the police to settle on some guy who had basically no support, no money, no friends, people willing to turn on him. He was sort of an outsider, even in that meth group. He was an easy target. Yeah, he was an easy target with, with not many resources to call on to um, protect himself. Here's Phil's take. Well, at the time, no one knew what to think. I mean, uh, Gable was a completely new name out there, and all of a sudden the, the state police are promoting him as their prime suspect. Even now, it's something of a mystery how they picked him. And it appears that it all happened in about May of 89, just as Krauss was disappearing as a suspect. This is when Krauss started talking about possible connections to corrections officials. Gable was also clearly confused as to what was happening to him and struggled to articulate what his accusers could possibly gain by pinning the murder on him. 
Here he is at an interview at the time of his arrest. I believe it's because a lot of the people like Kearns and several other inmates are jumping on the bandwagon thinking, well, we can get our charges dropped, you know, point the finger at Gable, we'll get there and get our charges dropped so my name keeps coming up. The Mike Cairns Gable spoke of in that interview was another of Salem's usual suspects who happened to be at the Marion County lockup when police arrested Gable. He was the first in a rogues gallery of criminals used to try and tie Gable to the killing. Kearns was the first one to go public and say that Gable had confessed to him. He would later go public and say he made it all up, which of course he did. That's how it got started. And then the uh, state police started finding other so-called witnesses who, who would say that Gable confessed to them. But according to Gable, he had a solid alibi and one that didn't exactly paint him as a saint. He claimed to be busily committing an entirely different crime at the time of Mike's murder. I was at a friend of mine's house named Chris Orillo's with him and two other girls. I didn't leave my home, I believe, until at least 8 o'clock that night. And I went from there to a friend of mine's house and delivered some drugs and then went to Chris's house and spent the rest of that evening there and came home about 5 that morning. So 52 days away from finishing a sentence for an unrelated domestic abuse charge, Frank Gable now feared he was going to be charged with Michael Frankie's murder. I've been so scared. You know, each day you don't know if you're getting out in 52 days or if you're going to get put to death penalty for a crime you didn't commit. You know, so it's, yeah, I'm scared. More scared than I've ever been in my life. You know, I believe that I walked into a complicated drug ring and really don't know how complicated it was until now. And it would get even more complicated and even more perplexing. There was never any physical evidence linking Gable to the murder. His cellmate's false accusation, along with the testimony from characters entwined in Salem's underworld, were the only quote-unquote evidence the police had to go on. Who were the people who came forward as the state's witnesses? Uh, well, they did not come forward. The, the police selected them uh, and helped them manufacture the, the stories they wanted using lie detector tests. That's one of the more remarkable things about, about this case, than uh, the way lie detector tests were used to shape testimony. The two star witnesses for the, the state from the beginning were uh, Jody Swearingen and Shorty Harden. Jody was a 17-year-old runaway who'd been in and out of uh, Hillcrest, the girls' school, certainly part of the tweaker scene there. Shorty Hardin's name's come up before. He was friends with Tim Natividad. They ran in the same drug-dealing circle. Yeah, they, they did business together. Shorty and Jody would become the state star witnesses linking Gable to the murder. After 23 polygraphs, <laughs> it took them that long to get Jody to, to tell the story they wanted. Jody's story was that Gable had, uh, whom, by the way, she hadn't met until uh, about six months later, had driven her to the uh, dome building that night. And while she was at the dome building, she called Shorty to come pick her up. They didn't have cell phones in those days, so she had to walk a, a distance to a payphone, which uh, the police were, by the way, were never able to find or identify. And uh, the story is that uh, just before the, the murder occurred, Shorty drove up in his Mustang, parked there. Jody got into his car. Shorty said he saw Frankie coming out of the uh, dome building, yelling at Gable, who was in the car at the time. He got to the car. Gable lunged out of the car and stabbed Frankie. Shorty said he started his car. And he and, and Jody uh, drove off into the night. The state didn't seem to mind that the version Jody and Shorty settled upon contradicted the account of the only eyewitness on record, Wayne Hunsacker, the maintenance man who had seen two men interacting the night Frankie was murdered. They put all these made-up witnesses in front of the grand jury, including Jody and, and uh, Shorty, of course. And in fact... They even allowed Jody and Shorty to meet privately uh, in a room before the grand jury so they could get their stories straight. 
And they did, and they testified that they had been there at the dome building on the night of the murder and seen the murder. Testimony that had been coerced. They threatened her. She finally came up with the story that she was present when he stabbed Michael Frankie. Shorty was a uh, local tough guy. He'd done business with Tim Natividad. He, he was uh, deeply entrenched in, in the, the Salem un, uh, underworld, made multiple deals with the cops along the way, and they got him to testify against Gable, too. And Kevin says great effort went into bringing Shorty Harden in and getting him on board. There was a very, very big uh, police presence in running Shorty down for a parole violation. They had city of Salem cops. They had a police helicopter in the air track. They had state police running him down. And he was doing his best to get away. And I think he went over a large, like a 10-foot fence or something like that and tore a tendon in his hand or some nonsense. Anyway, they eventually caught him, took him to Salem Hospital. He had surgery. And as he was coming out of surgery, he said he was the state's next million-dollar baby. All he had to do was hang a a murder rap on Frank Gable. It became a pattern. Here's Tom McCallum, the lead investigator for Gable's defense. I mean, Shorty and Jody, and you know, it was just their lineup of uh, all the people that they did all the polygraphs on and uh, sort of developed their testimony. They were all druggies, and I knew that everything was, I mean, it was pretty crazy. Here's Phil's take. But several months later, Jody spoke with uh, Tom McCallum, who was the lead investigator for the defense, and confessed that she'd made up the story. She wasn't there. It wasn't what happened. She also talked to Steve Jackson at the uh, Salem paper. And then she took off. The state police went after her and arrested her and brought her back and put her in jail. So she tried to flee town so she wouldn't have to testify. Oh, she did, yes. Jody and Shorty weren't alone in feeling pressured by the state police. I was at my desk. The Oregonian got a call from a prison guard in Clark County Jail, which is just right across the river in Vancouver, Washington. And he said, you won't believe this, but I've got a guy over here who says the state police are pressuring him to make up a story about Gable. You want to come over and talk to him? I said, oh, yeah. So I I went over there, and there's this guy, Gessner. He's in his 20s, and he says, they want me to say that Gable confessed to the murder. Uh, He didn't. Then he went on to say he'd already been convicted on drug charges, and they were really pressuring him. This uh, U.S. attorney had charged him with violation of federal gun laws, which would add another decade or so to his sentence. And, And so he says, Gessner says to me, what am I supposed to do? What's a guy supposed to do? All of which could explain Gable's shock and confusion at being targeted. Local television reporter Eric Mason was one of the reporters who spoke to Gable following his arrest. Do you remember how you found out that Frank Gable was arrested? I think it was a press conference that Dale Penn had. My thinking was, wow, there's so many other folks that are probably, yeah, that's the last person I want to, you know, it didn't make sense. The idea that he was the lone assailant of Michael Frankie, just there was more to it than that. Obviously, there was more to it than that. He just looked like a kid that would never get close to Mike Frankie. After being up close to Mike Frankie and seeing him play basketball and meeting him on the steps of the Capitol to do an interview with him, and it seemed like a mismatch. Frank Gable was thin and spindly and looked like someone who had been on meth and just didn't look physically strong enough to take on a guy like Mike Frankie. It just didn't make sense. When Mason sat down with Gable after his arrest, He just didn't get the feeling that this was a murderer, and he'd interviewed a number of them. was at Oregon State Penitentiary, and I believe my first few interviews are on the phone with Frank Gable, and the little bell goes off in my head that says, this person is telling me the truth. He just was the wrong guy. It it didn't look like a guy that I was interviewing that was responsible for the crime. His body language didn't reveal it. His eyes didn't reveal it. His presence didn't reveal it. You got the feeling that he was a guy who, 
that's involved in meth and involved in small-time crime and certainly had a problem with his wife, uh, but uh, a guy that was not uh, a person who was a natural-born killer at all. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, Kevin Frankie is back at his home in Florida, battling the issues of trying to keep interest going in his brother's murder from long distance. So it was just constantly poking the bear, trying to keep the thing going and keep it in the face of the public, in the ears and eyes of the public. Doing video shoots from a station down in Florida where I'd get in front of the blue screen and do the remote shots and things like that. So everybody was getting to know me and getting to know Pat. And the visibility of the Frankie brothers in the media led to a nickname with certain members of the press. I don't know who coined the the term the the Cranky Brothers, but we became the Cranky Brothers uh, to the press. And I liked it. Goldschmidt, Penn, and that group didn't get it. Yeah, we were cranky. We were pissed off. While that nickname didn't bother them, the anonymous calls and rumors circling around Mike's murder did. Rumors that you hear from phone calls that you get that you don't know who it is. So I'd get calls and rumors, you know, your brother was mutilated, his heart was removed. Weird, weird shit. I had one letter that was, Mike was killed as part of a satanic ritual and this was carved in his chest and blah, blah, blah. And I'd send this to him and they said, we can't comment on it. At the same time, the state continued to push the narrative that Gable was the killer. 
After months of back-and-forth phone calls and over a year since his brother's murder, Kevin got a call from the police captain heading up the investigation. I got the uh, phone call at home on April 9th, the morning of April 9th, and I'm going to say it was around 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. And it was Captain Dennis O'Donnell on the line, and he stated his purpose for the call was to inform me that they had indicted Frank Gable for the murder of Mike. I said something to the effect that you got to be shitting me. So I said, well, why are you calling me instead of, because I was expecting that if there was a call that it'd be from the DA's office. And he said, we flipped a coin and I lost. <laughs> so. That's how they chose to tell the brother of a murder victim that someone had been indicted in the crime. Right. Mm-hmm. And Kevin was far from convinced they'd indicted the right man. And I said, well, I'm going to be coming out there for the trial. And he said, but no, you don't need to do that. It's, you know, put yourself through that, your family and all that. So you'll get contemporaneous updates from everybody here. And I thought, well, you know, why didn't he want me to come out there for the trial? And I said, I'm going to be coming out there anyway. And there was this long pause, and he said, well, there's nothing I can do to dissuade you. And uh, he said, anyway, don't try to contact me. I'm going on vacation. A week later, Kevin would decide to leave Florida altogether. I didn't have anything to stay in Florida for. So on August 16th of 1990, he set out again for the town where his brother was brutally murdered. On the way, he stopped by Prairie Village, Kansas, to visit for his mother's birthday. It was the first time he'd seen his parents since Michael's death. As he walked up the path to his childhood home, he was greeted by his overjoyed mother. And it was a beautiful summer morning. I was tired as hell, and she was a sight for sore eyes. Saw my old man come out of the front door, and they didn't know I was going to be there. And he was bawling like a baby. (laughs) I haven't seen her skip down the stairs like that in years. (laughs) <laughs> but it was good to see them. And I told them I th- was thinking about going to Oregon, and they were trying to talk me out of it. Anyway, I left the next day. And the entire trip, Kevin's thoughts were on Mike and his accused killer. By the time I-70 West came up, I was there, and western Colorado opened up before me and into Utah, and watching the sun go down going up into Idaho and coming down the Columbia River Gorge in Oregon in the middle of the night, pitch black. And then dawn in Portland, Oregon, 7 o'clock rolling into town. And it was like I blinked and here I was. But certain people seemed to know Kevin was there too and didn't exactly give him a warm welcome. The very first night that I was in Oregon, I got my tires slashed. And... Then I got a a note saying, uh, welcome to Oregon, now go home. That was placed on the the windshield. And it wouldn't end there. I started to feel like I was being watched. I started paying attention to that. And I started seeing the same cars and the same people. And I'd stop and they would go away and then they'd find me again. And it it does make you feel a little nuts. But despite this, Salem is where Kevin would remain, determined to solve his brother's murder no matter what. And one of the first people he got into touch with was television reporter Eric Mason. I'm doing an interview with Kevin right away. Within a few days of him coming to town, he has nowhere to stay, and he's trying to find a place to stay. And I say, you know, listen, I'll do anything to try to help you. And so I think he did, at one point, camp out overnight in the the office until he could find something to, you know, stay with permanently. Eric Mason's office became a sort of bunker for Kevin to pour through all the interviews and press conferences involving Mike's investigation and Gable's indictment. He had the, all the video equipment there and the interviews with Scott McAllister that I was interested in, a lot of the bullshit that Goldschmidt was bouncing off the walls and likening us, uh, my brother Pat and myself, to in one he had it cut out, but he said he was like a hysterical female. 
It was just another in a line of statements and insults, like the Cranky Brothers, used to try to discredit Kevin and Pat's efforts. Yeah, I remember early on that Kevin had the level of suspicion in his mind that would put cops on edge, and that he was not only suspicious of the people that surrounded Mike in the prison system, he was also very suspicious of the people that were investigating his brother's murder. And he made that really clear early on and didn't pull any punches with that. He wanted some level of oversight and that any reporter that was going to take extra time to go digging, he was going to try to help them with what was going on with the, with the investigation. And so Kevin turned to the press for that oversight and to help him draw attention to what he considered serious flaws in the investigation. Steve Jackson was on top of it every day from the Statesman Journal. Phil Stanford had a column that he could push the limits of journalism into opinion really far with some really speculative material. And Phil Stanford actually, I think, brought the ire of his own you know, colleagues at the Oregonians. Like, I mean, he kept a lot of it coming and a good degree of content within the ballpark of what is possible when corruption's going on. But Phil was quickly finding himself at odds with his own paper over his columns on the Frankie investigation. Well, the pushback was coming not from my immediate superior, but from the news operation. And the news editor, who was uh, supporting a couple of basically inept reporters who had been assigned to cover the Frankie case, but were instead just carrying water for the state police and the uh, district attorney. So every time I raised questions about the case, they felt that they were being criticized, I think. And eventually, and very soon, they started uh, uh, dropping things into their news stories about me. It was, it was very strange. It was very strange. Phil was one of several prominent journalists raising questions. Here's Eric Mason again. So there were questions about the way that the DA was handling things and with witnesses. That was Steve Jackson's specialty. Here's Steve Jackson. That's what troubled me the most about a lot of this case. I think the prosecution was myopic, and they settled on this is, this is what happened, and we're going to do everything we can to prove this is what happened, not that something happened and we're going to gather the evidence and see what makes sense and what we can prove. And they all seem dead set on avoiding the possibility that corruption within corrections could have led to Michael Frankie's murder or examining the staff members he was at odds with at the time of his death, including Scott McAllister, the assistant AG he told Kevin he wanted removed. Here's Eric Mason. Early on, that was a question. What was it about Scott McAllister that irked a brand new corrections director from New Mexico so bad he didn't want to go on vacation with him? There would later be talk about that vacation, a team-building ski trip that Michael Frankie went on shortly after joining Corrections in Oregon. Frankie, an avid skier, was looking forward to the work retreat, but for some reason, abruptly left. Years later, Eric Mason would interview Mike Frankie's then-secretary about his hasty return from that trip. What Evelyn Meeks said was, within a day of Mike arriving, Something had upset him so much that he wanted to get right back on the road for Oregon, either on a plane or in a rental car, to get him back as quickly as possible because he didn't want anything to do with the people who were on that ski trip. Was Scott McAllister on that ski trip? Yes, and that actually when he returns, it is clear to the inner circle there at Corrections that Mike wanted Scott McAllister not to be the attorney for the corrections division any longer. Mason's pursuit of the case led him to Tim Natividad's ex, Liz Godlove, who, as we spoke about last episode, had come forward to the police with information she believed pointed to Natividad as the potential murderer and was basically dismissed. She had was now a, a main character inside the world of Michael Frankie. You know, um, I had a 
flowchart in my office with photographs and Tim Natividad and Liz Godlove were on my chart right away. Yeah, after hearing this. At first, Liz didn't want to go public with the information and was even cautioned by authorities not to. So you and your lawyer make the decision to go public. We did, yeah. Why? You know, we just wanted the truth to come out. We needed closure. Michael needed justice, and we just, we did. We had a, just a, a feeling it was Tim. That must have been like a difficult decision. You had just been through a really traumatic life yes. experience. Traumatic is right. It was, it was tough. I was really scared, but also drawn strongly to, to do it, to talk about it. Since Kevin was spending so much time at Eric's office and knew Liz was a person of interest in his brother's case, he went to her attorney's office to observe that interview. Eric was there and Liz was there and her sister Karen was there and I was there and we introduced each other. They were going to backshoot Liz so that they could just see the profile on TV. And, of course, I could see everything. Uh, the camera couldn't see the facial expressions and things like that. Eric Mason conducted the interview while Kevin looked on. Liz laid everything out on the line about her belief that Tim Natividad, the father of her child and man she killed in self-defense, was the man in the pinstripe suit, Michael Frankie's potential killer. I think that that really pushed a lot of buttons and not in a good way. It made a lot of people extremely uncomfortable that I was sitting there talking with Liz and that Liz was now coming out with information about Natividad. Kevin immediately saw something in Liz that struck a chord with him. I knew the pain that she had felt and that she was feeling and the absolute horror that she went through with the murder and the, the trial and the accusations and the, the, the bullshit, basically. And I could identify with that. As he listened to Liz tell her story, Kevin found more and more to identify with. I was shocked that the system, the, the state police, the district attorney's office, the governor's people, and the governor himself would take exception to me and my brother Pat having more than a casual interest in the murder of my brother, for Christ's sake. And to just shoo you off and say, go mind your own business, we'll take care of it. We'll let you know if we find anything. So you had that on top of the grieving and, uh, you know, just a, a blunder full of bullshit that uh, I could relate to Liz with that. So Kevin asked her out for dinner the traumatized ex-girlfriend and killer of his brother's likely murderer. You stop and think about it, oh my God, the two of us, you know, what we had gone through, here we are together on a date. He's like, a, you know, he wanted to spend more time with me and I did him, and it grew pretty quickly. But really, we leaned on each other and it was very, very nice. I didn't get any pushback, uh... I think Pat might have said something like, you're sure you're okay and you're sure you're doing the right thing. I think Pat knew me well enough and knows me well enough to know that I knew where I was stepping. And, you know, I didn't fall into this thing as, as a blind idiot. And that date? Ultimately, it turned into what's now a nearly 30-year marriage, despite the many obstacles they had to overcome. Well, we make a great team, and he makes me laugh every single day. <laughs> He's funny. <sighs> yeah. yeah, the kids and the dogs and the cats and the parrots and, you know, the whole thing is, uh, it's, it's fun. But all of that came much later. After Liz's interview with Mason, Kevin continued to pursue his own interviews with people he believed to be connected to his brother's murder, not believing Frank Gable, who would soon stand trial, to be involved. That was leading Kevin deeply into Salem's criminal element. 
it was also leading him into a very acrimonious and increasingly targeted relationship with the police. But anytime I was getting followed, I thought that there was a chance that I could get pulled over on a side street or something like that. And the byline would be he reached for a gun or he did something stupid and he felt threatened and that sort of nonsense. The police had taken to more than verbally threatening Kevin. Well, it's not verbal when there's a gun pointing in your temple. And that happened several on several occasions. Kevin says he was constantly being followed by state police cars and felt like he and Liz were in danger. It got so bad, they considered packing up and leaving town for good. And there was uh, one time a state police car pulls up next to me and slides over in front of me and slows down real slow. And then another one suddenly appears out of a side street and is next to me. And then there's one behind me. And Liz goes, oh, shit. I pulled over a curb in a gas station and got around on the other side going the other direction. And they couldn't get off to come pursue me, but it was just a little, we know you're here type of shit. It seemed they were sending Kevin a message that they wanted him gone. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Another time? Kevin got a page from a policeman who asked him to come meet him down at a local bar. That's how Kevin found out there was an officer's advisory on the law enforcement data system stating he could be armed and dangerous. It said officer safety advisory uh, that the subject individual approached with caution, something to that effect, uh, known to carry weapons, and regarding uh, an assassin's rifle, 
with a high-powered scope in the trunk of his car. A gun that Kevin didn't have. It gives basically any cop the wherewithal to take you out if he if he's a dirty cop. And there was also, you know, the great possibility because of that officer safety advisory that there was anybody's opportunity to take my head off and say, yep, we told you he had an assassin's rifle and he was armed. The whole purpose was to get me the hell out of town, I think. And then it all came to a head. It seemed the Salem and state police were no longer content with mere intimidation. One night after drinking at a local bar with his friend John Bray, things escalated. We were coming down Center Street in Salem by the Duck Inn, and there was a Salem cop that pulled out and started following me, and then there was another one, and then suddenly there was a state cop, and I think a Marion County cop. I think there were a total of six cars, five cop cars in this white T-Bird, and uh, they're following me down Center Street, and I only lived about a block east of Cordon Road, right off Center Street. And they lit me up right as I got to the stop sign. I kept going, stopped at Cordon Road, and the sirens came on then. They were whooping it up. They kept in pursuit, even as Kevin neared his home. I pulled in right in front of where we lived, and the cops pull in behind me, and all their lights are going on, which wakes Liz up. And that was when they uh, got on the PA system and gave me the orders to let me see your hands and exit the vehicle and get on your knees. And I wasn't going to get on my knees. I sat there waiting for, I was was just wondering if I was going to see the windshield blow out before my brains, all kinds of weird things were coming into my head. And there was a guy sitting over to my right and I kept watching the cops in my rearview mirror because they had the the light shining in the outside mirror here. So I redirected that to shine the light back towards them. And I had my other mirror over here that I had so I could watch and see, and I could see about five cops back there. And I saw a couple with shotguns and I saw the rest with their handguns out. I said, John, who is that guy to to right? And he says, that's fucking Hart. And Hart was Oregon State Police. Hart and Lauren Glover used to do all the criminal investigations at the joint. And he's got a shotgun, a riot gun, pointed in the window. And that's when I really, really, really got scared. You thought you were a dead man? Yeah, I did. And then... Liz came out and started yelling, Kevin, what the hell's going on? And John's uh, father-in-law comes out of the house with a shotgun. He says, what the hell's going on down there? So all these people are coming down, and and Hart is looking around, and he's screaming at Liz to get back in the house. Because now he has how many witnesses standing Yeah, everybody in the world and his brother, and all the lights are coming on over at John's house. And that's when they threw me in the back of the car and slammed the door on my feet and searched the car and didn't find anything illegal, obviously, because there wasn't anything illegal. On what grounds did they say they were doing this? They said that they had gotten a report that I had threatened somebody with a gun. And I said, who? (laughs) It wouldn't tell me who. And I tried to get the police report, and it was an anonymous tip phoned in that I had threatened somebody with a gun. And the only thing I could figure was probably fucking Hart that phoned it in and then joined the parade because he was probably giving them coordinates or, or where I was. And so it was phoned in from a payphone. How did that end? Everybody was coming out and uh, they went up and searched the car. John was, they had John face down out on the grass and boom, they just disappeared. The guy said, you know, you better be careful, Kevin. Next guy might shoot you. On the next murder in Oregon, the state mounts a baffling murder trial based on questionable witnesses. All those people have told the different stories 16 different times. You can't rely on anybody's testimony to testify in that trial. A severely compromised defense team if I was going to pick 
an attorney to handle that case, I would have picked several other people first. That ends with a shocking verdict. I was stunned. It did not make sense. Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin. With music supervision by Noel Brown. Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Archival elements courtesy of KGW in Portland, Oregon, the station behind the podcast Urge to Kill. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, Chelsea Handler here from the Dear Chelsea podcast, and I love women. iHeart is proud to celebrate International Women's Day by highlighting some truly exceptional women and the work they do to make the world a better place. Our guest this week is none other than Monica Lewinsky. We discuss what to do about online bullying, why the media treats men and women so differently, and how we women can turn our pain into power. Take a moment this week to think about how you can support the women in your life and then take action. Find Dear Chelsea on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.